Yeah, I think it should be all right. And how's this? One, two, three, four, five. We put up a level a little bit. Yeah, I think this will do. Off we go. You are listening to Citizen Reporter at citizenreporter.org. Hello, everyone, and greetings from Boston. Uh, we're in Beacon Hill. It is the 1st of December 2021, wherever you are in the future. Uh, you can look back fondly, perhaps, at December 1st, 2021. And I'm in the kitchen or at the kitchen table where I love to be at least once a year or as often as possible, sitting across from my dear friend, uh, the original podcaster, uh, a journalist, uh, a man about town, a friend to all, in my opinion, and certainly a great friend of mine, Christopher Leiden is here. Hello, Chris. Hello, Mark. Bicycle Mark. It's <laughs> such a pleasure to hang with you. we got to figure out a way to do this in more places and more often. It, it is a joy to have you in my house, and you were incredibly helpful in putting our show together this week, too. But it's you, man, from the, <laughs> from the pyramids, yeah, from Egypt, from Lebanon, from North Africa, uh, wonderful travels. We ought to consider doing that kind of thing again, quite seriously. Yes, yeah, and, and you know, you and I, um, between the, the the programs that we make, but also the the visits, uh, I love to talk about what's happening. <laughs> everything from what's happening in Boston, what's happening in the United States. I mean, we cover it all, and and you never, there is no subject you're not interested in, and and I share that with you. <laughs> Almost, we try anyway, but that's interesting. Boston, quick note seems to be a terrific exception to an awful lot of trends. We've elected the first non-Irish Catholic Boston guy in about a century, a woman of Chinese ancestry from Taiwan, uh, remarkable Michelle Wu, Harvard graduate, intensely serious person who uh, prevailed in a field of mostly women, a lot of them African-American, all of them interesting, and she's definitely a new breath of progressive energy, especially the energy department and inclusion yeah. and breaking molds. So that's worth, worth noting. Yeah. We, we, I, it's a strange part of the world, Mark, you're in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> I can see it in all different kinds of ways. For example, in 2021, of course, we some people will say we're in a post-corona world, the, the coronavirus. I would argue we're still in it. Uh, I would too. And, and it's interesting. I don't get to travel a lot because we're trying to be cautious. But in the end, I because of where my family is located, I do travel perhaps more than most these days that are being extra cautious. And as I even move around uh, in Boston, I had to pass through New York briefly, uh, even New Jersey, South and North, I can sort of hmm. test the weather on a certain and perhaps a certain subject of coronavirus and how people approach it. But also, I think it bleeds into a little bit of everything, how people here, for example, have masks on 
pretty regularly, even on the street. Yeah, can you tell where you are by how many masks are on people's faces? In some ways, yes. And I'm not saying that's a wonderful thing. I think there are some medical professionals who would say, good, cautious above all. My mother, who's a very wise oracle, says that in South Jersey, and I saw this firsthand, when you see someone with a mask, you can breathe easy. It's a Democrat. My mom, deep in the thick of the, <laughs> the you know, she's just, she can't believe what's going on politically, that yeah. people are uh, either hateful or, or you know, mm -hmm. just so combative. We live in a weird time, Chris, because people will point to the United States, they always have, and say, uh, look at what people are doing, mm -hmm. or look at the politics of it. And up until a year or so ago, look at the president. Um, but... For me, it's not just the United States. It's everywhere in the world. There is this trend. There are trends. You've just pointed mm. to one of them. The wonderful progressive energy. I call it wonderful. You may be sitting somewhere saying, I don't know about progressive, but let's just go with that. It's, it's new. It's uh, a, perhaps a different way of looking at the world than what has come before. As you mentioned, guys, Irish before, right, for Boston. Um, but at the same time, and, and, and there are examples like this all over the world, but at the same time, we also have the other side, right? We have the people who don't want to hear from the scientists, don't want to hear from the academics, don't want to read your big book uh, about how who we are and how we got here. And we all live together in this world. We're all sharing this planet. Yeah, I, I think, Mark, just to start in a different direction, I, I think we're in a deeper crisis than 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 weirdness. And I also think, even in the last two, three years, the crisis is gaining on people. They can't ignore it. They can pretend they do, but it's, it's touching all of us. You mentioned this new book, giant 650-page book by David Graeber, David Wengo, called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. It crystallizes a lot of things in my head about the, the crisis of our time in almost any direction, climate especially, health, viruses, politics, we are not coping with our world. But something is deeply failing here. And at the same time, there's elements of a very healthy kind of wake-up call hmm. that we're, we, we are, we're gonna have to pay our dues here for a lot of big historic things. First and foremost, uh, slavery, and the fact that we live in a land among th that we stole mm -hmm. and that we made rich with stolen labor. This becomes an inescapable fact of our lives. And not to, you know, collapse in, in writhing guilt about it either, but the undeniable fact is that we didn't come by this incredible fortune of the United States uh, Quite, quite rightly. Mm -hmm. And I am also, and you and I have traveled enough to know, especially the Middle East, that we are, we are still in a post-colonial world mm -hmm. and there's great relief that it's coming to be over, but we're having to face up to unbelievable damage, damage to our ideals, damage to our reputation, damage to um, uh, our, our constitutional history in what we've done in the last you know, the post-World War II period. And it's been my adult lifetime. Yeah. And I take it rather personally. We were joking about what was the apex of the American experiment, this great, unbelievable story. And I come back to, 
um, this is a game, a part of a game, not, not serious history, but June, early June, 1962, the president of the United States, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, addressed my graduating class at Yale University in New Haven. And I look back and I think, what a dashing, handsome, purposeful, well-prepared, we thought, President of the United States. Uh, it's before Vietnam becomes an establishment obsession. Uh, it's be the civil rights movement and that awareness is dawning and we know it's coming and it's good. Um, it's a time of un still unbelievable prosperity in the post-war rebuilding in a country that was not damaged physically or in terms of manufacturing either uh, by World War II. And uh, the, the, the sky was bright. I remember the day very, very well. What could go wrong? We have a gallant prince in front of us. With the famous opening of his graduation speech, he said, uh, it can now be uh, said uh, that uh, I have the best of both worlds, uh, a Harvard education and a Yale degree. Uh, not all the Yaleys like that. But, you know, he was funny, among other things. In any event, I think the, the history of my time, I... I of my adulthood, I'm beginning to realize, is one of gravest kinds of mistakes, hmm. Vietnam above all, but it's a pattern that we didn't escape mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a picture. Think of John Kerry, volunteer in that war, and served well, in my view. He was a hero in his 20s, uh, came back and denounced the war before Senator Fulbright's committee and issued that famous line, uh, who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake? Mm -hmm. And I think back, who could have guessed that John Kerry would not only get to the United States Senate, but get to be chairman of the Fulbright Committee, mm -hmm. the Foreign Relations Committee? He held no hearings on the Iraq War for which he had voted, which for which Hillary voted, for which Joe Biden voted. Mm -hmm. we, we, we've, we've gone into horrific embarrassments of judgment, disappointment in, I mean, who are the stand-up politicians in our time? Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, I don't know, I don't want to sound too, take it too personally or be too, too gloomy about it, but the years of my adulthood have been incredibly uh, compromising yeah. and, and distressed. That's yeah. the short form. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I haven't read the, the Dawn of Everything, but I've been sitting this week, you and I together, uh, recording the interviews, hearing the, the conversations and, and going back to them, you know, really looking over each word. And there's this idea that I know that you love, and, and I don't see why anyone wouldn't enjoy it, the idea that not everything that is has to be. Uh, there have been other civilizations that didn't do it our way, and there were they they benefited. They there there was something meaningful about it. We've I, I was raised in this country. You were raised in this country. There there was a lot, and maybe every country has its lore, its story of right. who you are and why. I guess why you're special. I don't know why you have to be special, and I think that's maybe the question that starts right. to come up here. You know, you're why do we have to be exceptional? Yeah. And, and, you know, in the 80s, because I remember the 80s, it seemed like, you know, between the movies with, with Sylvester Stallone and, and Reagan, the movie president or the TV president, um, it seemed like you needed to have this for us to survive. We needed these stories. For, but increasingly, we see, first of all, that it's all a facade. 
uh, you're not actually the exceptional people that do good all over the world. That's understood. I mean, even the isolationists of this uh, of this country, part of I think the isolation is understanding that ooh, we 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 often do more harm than good. I mean, maybe there's we do a- horrific things, Mark, and yeah. we were deluded. I'm fascinated by Frederick Logeval's sort of deeper hindsight biography of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It's just the first volume, but um, the point is. As I said to him in a podcast, um, he had better judgment when he was 21 years old, finishing his Harvard education, wrote a marvelous book, actually, while England slept. Yeah. Uh, he had better judgment then in seeing, in some sense, the necessity of American intervention in World War II, which his father did not. Um, but he thought more deeply about the failure of England's politicians in the 30s to to warn the country of what was coming. They disarmed, they had suffered badly in World War I and were completely unprepared. In any case, JFK was ahead of the game on that. In, in office, in 1961, two, three, he made exactly the wrong judgments about Vietnam. No, it was not a threat to our vital interests, whichever way it went. They had very good reason to want to go uh, with North Vietnam as Franklin Roosevelt had encouraged them, they would. We would not let the French reestablish a colonial regime in in, in South Vietnam. And uh, he blew it. And we've never gotten out of that syndrome. We killed two million people in Vietnam. Yeah. This bird, you know, we've dropped more bombs on Laos than in all of World War II on Western Europe. I mean, these are horrific misjudgments. Whether they are civilization ending, regime ending, or not, we're going to have to find out. But it's a sign of something. Huh? It's a sign of a lost, uh, yeah, empire in a way, or a lost standing, lost, lost money, lost lives. It's yeah. uh, and especially it's the critical conversation yeah. that's gone missing, and and that's where you and I are both kind of in our own tiny way. Uh, trying to explore something different, trying to say things that mainstream media doesn't particularly care to bother with. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no time for it. There's seemingly not enough interest. That's always the you know not enough people will watch or will listen. So uh, we get media these days that right. that have to go in a different direction. I mean, and and people call us the United States of amnesia, which we are. Yeah, uh, we learn our geography only by going to war. And since Vietnam, Vietnam, and since since World War II, we haven't had a good one. We haven't we haven't had a good cause to send American troops into, in my opinion. And we haven't won one. It's a series of horrific losses. These are things that, in the context of the Graber Wingrove book, mm-hmm. The Dawn of Everything, these are the kinds of things that can can kill a country yeah. and 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 kill a civilization. So I, I, I live with that sort of suspense, but dread of, uh, of, of an adverse judgment all the time. Our politics is not what it was supposed to be. No, and it continues, right? That's that's the craziest part, right? You can. There are lots of people, and I always understand the sentiment, um, or I try to understand the sentiment, who want to look back at the crimes and the horrors of history and say, "That was then. We are not those people anymore." But then you can 
look around if you choose to and find lots of examples where there we are still in the midst of doing horrible things to people. And it's not just as the United States, certainly as a sort of, I don't know, Western society. And I'm thinking here, it's something I've been watching all year, the forests of Poland right now, just as one example. I mean, unfortunately, there's so many examples like this. You got to take me there one day. We would never be allowed, you and I. Well, maybe we could sneak through. Mm. <laughs> I have friends that are helping refugees in these freezing forests. You know, here we are in Boston. It's a cold place. I think it's comparable, if not colder, on the Poland-Belarus border. And people are being used by a government. They're being thrown. It reminds me of a civil war in a way, the, the, the civil war stories that we hear of just sending humans to be blown up or being shot at more and some go down right. and you send more. Um, and I don't even want to get into the, the details of which government is at fault for what, but in between all this wrangling and arguing, there are humans arriving at this border mm. with the wish or the assumption or the belief that if they make it across, a better life is there. And we've heard that before, better life, search for a better life. Um, and instead, they're being met by not just barbed wire, they're being met by, in some cases, all kinds of brutality. Uh, when it's not brutality, they're being trapped so that they basically just right. are, people are waiting to for them to freeze. Yeah. Right. And this is happening whilst in my lovely city of Amsterdam, tourists walk around, take pictures, people have a lovely drink at the corner. It's, it's a crazy civilization we live in. Uh, you know, it's so interesting. We've been talking about founding values with Wengro and Graeber in that context too. You think the Jefferson ideal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's so wonderful, that pursuit of happiness. One of the great Wengro Graeber themes is that the human species is playful fundamentally. It is into all sorts of pleasure, most of it innocent, which Jefferson had in mind, private contentment, family life, Dis dissent, but variety, variety of outlooks, and it's up to all of us to pursue it. That that general sort of spirit. Where do we see that in our country today? What you're describing on the street in Amsterdam sounds like a, a realm of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, with a certain confidence that it's in reach. It's for us to to find it. Um, today, the, the themes today are security, fear. <laughs> hostility, managing, managing fundamental but basically meaningless differences. Huh. Um, I don't know. There's a corruption of our standards in front of our eyes every day, Mark. Yeah. I hate to say it, but you, you and I have done this a number of times over years. Yeah. I think we ought to put the marker down that it feels like comeuppance time. Hmm. We're gonna we're gonna pay for our sins. It's an yeah. In, in what form then, though? I mean, do we pay? Do our, uh, you know, I'm going to have a child. It's the first Praise time I'm God. And this program. Congratulations, Mark. That's an important thing to get down. And people always say, you know, my fear is for my children or the next generation because they're going to suffer. And they're, you, we hear this all the time. They're going to ask, what was my dad or my grandfather doing? Absolutely. You know? But it seems like the way the world is still constructed, despite everything we know, is that this will continue. And and to go back to what one of our wonderful interviews this week said, so much of the way humanity goes and who suffers and who doesn't is straight up luck. Uh, you know mm. that that you're born in a in, within a certain border makes all the difference for 
how much you're going to get beat up or arrested or how mm. hungry you're going to be. That's it. That's it. Right. And and I think that the people going back to Amsterdam, for example, they're trying, a lot of people are trying to say, that's not my fault. Right. There is this, you know, and, and Americans will say that too, right? We try to do good. I try to buy organic and, and do well in my community. It's not my fault what's happening over there. And it's, it's, um, it's a, that seems both right and outrageously wrong. For one thing, yeah. it's yeah. a kind of bill of goods we've been sold that the oil companies, the, the coal interests are not responsible. It's you, you with your, your gas guzzling car or your jet air, air yeah. flights. And that we've been sold that it's a matter of choice. Get a Prius and you're, you're an okay person. <laughs> uh, that's not what drives. We, we're not educating. We're not letting ourselves be educated as to the underlying causes of all this and the underlying interest and profit and gain that that drives this whole business. Yeah. I, I wonder sometimes if, if people have the capacity, and, and that could be something through education, through through sort of the conversations and culture to address these things. And I'm thinking about a comedian, Eddie Izzard. Uh, uh, you know, comedy has been my books for, for a lot of years, for better or for worse. But Eddie Izzard used to, you know, try to make a joke, essentially. But he said, the funny thing about civilization is occasionally um, someone does something bad. So we have a system for how to handle that. Okay, you... Uh, killed a person. Now that's that's bad. You're going to go over there. Now we're going to put you in that room for a couple of years, maybe a lot of years. Oh, you killed many people. Well, that's particularly bad. We're going to put you in that room. It's a more secure room, and and you're not going to see anyone. In some countries, they they execute you. They think that's a thing. That's the way. But at some point in the history of humanity, someone comes along, say a Hitler or whoever, and is responsible for the murder of so many that humanity can't process it, and we get stuck. And he gave the example of Pol Pot, and he said, Pol Pot was placed under house arrest because people didn't really know what to do. Yeah. We, it, was, it was too big to process, so they put him in a house. And Eddie Izzard found this to be the source of a very odd, also potentially, a joke about society that, well, the best we can say is don't go in that house. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we simply can't process. I would say what we've done and perhaps what we're doing. We're, some people are trying, but I often feel like people just... Well, didn't Stalin say that, you know, kill one person, it's a murder. Kill a million people, it's a statistic. Yeah. It, it, it is beyond reach. I want to just say, though, before we get too sure. dark and deep, I mean, there's so many wonderful things going on in this extraordinary country of ours, and I'm fascinated at the end of 2021 to think of it as a, a remarkable year in African-American history, um, and so many gains, even out of terribly grim things like the murder of George Floyd. But that has been addressed uh, in lots and lots of ways. Black Lives Matter is on a profound role in playing a part in the conversation. The, the swift and absolute condemnation and conviction of three men in Georgia for the death of, for, for killing Arnold Arbery, uh, is a real turn, feels like a real turn. And there have been a number of other jury trial verdicts that show a, a readiness to reckon with our history and the, the terrible injustices of this world today. But also, 
uh, the black presence in in novel writing, in I mean, it's always been <laughs> obvious in things like uh, the NBA mm. and every kind of sport, but in our culture, as well as in our music, you and I talk a lot about uh, music and the African, huge African-American distinction in it. Um, we're, we're ready for something different. And, there, and it's a very broad movement and consciousness, I think. So, And it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's also humans, right? That's also our world. That's, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You are listening to Citizen Reporter at citizenreporter.org. I wanted to ask you, you know, um, Chris, you're, you're, you're now 81 years old. Believe it or not. Am I on? Yeah. Uh, you, you would never tell it, uh, just for the <laughs> audio audience. I tell my grandchildren I'm 19, and they say, go. yeah, but they let me do it. <laughs> and you, uh, when you get up and, and on your average day, you're going to do a conversation. You're, you're recording. You're, you're also reading a lot for, for uh beyond, well, many reasons, including that you may interview the author of some some of these books to discuss what, what they're trying to get at. What, why do you still do this? And, and what I mean to say is there are people that would have said, I did my share, I'm done, had great conversations, but what, what gets you up in the morning to have that oatmeal and then do that interview? Um, what still motivates you? Well, because I can, for one thing, and also because I'm genuinely interested in these questions. Uh, I wish I read more. I wish I read more fiction. I have my old-time fiction masters, Henry James and Dostoevsky above all, but many, many others. Uh, but I, I want to read important new stuff. I'm, I don't know. I, I, I'm a somewhat fixated history major uh, still trying to dope it out. I love talking to people, listening to people, and um, it's 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 a great deal of fun. I I had this other impulse that says, Chris, you've done enough radio interviews. You don't need you know that old joke about there was never a dying executive who said, God, I wish I had done more meetings. You know, <laughs> um, it hasn't happened, and I'm not trying to set a record for interviews done. <laughs> But the good ones feel like real inquiries. I'm yeah. dying to... And some new ones recently. We did a show with Rebecca Solnit on Orwell. It was a joy to wallow in Orwell for a couple of weeks. We did a terrific conversation, I thought, with E.O. Wilson, the famous Ant-Man, some yes. say successor to Darwin, as an observer, intensely close observer of animal life. I remember being with him in his Harvard office and his, his, his glass and plastic uh, enclosed, uh, yeah, antarium, whatever you call it. <laughs> um, but he, he, he watched them studiously, yeah. and he, sh he could tell you what was going on. Um, he's 92, still writing, still thinking big thoughts on where we're going, not quite as worried, it seemed to me, as he used to be about the, the crash of species. Um, at the same time, he's just engaged. I mean, it, it's a privilege. I've, I've been interviewing him over the years, going back 30, 40 at least. But um, 
I love to. I, I, I'm, I'm one of the few people who remembers or notices that Vladimir Nabokov, the butterfly guy, had an office just down the corridor from E.O. Wilson, and they used to talk back in the days when when Nabokov was already when Nabokov when Nabokov was already writing Lolita. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, yeah, we we live in a world of uh, incredibly. Interesting, various people, and uh, it's a joy, Mark, to say hello. You said something this week, and and we can get, come closer to a conclusion, at least for this conversation. But you you were in conversation regarding uh, the dawn of everything, and and which contains the stories, the documentation of um, a history that you never got, and you said many of us never got in school. You called it your superior education, as they would refer to it. Uh, yeah. The good schools that you went to and the studies that you put in. Sometimes I think these conversations, you're you're filling in the gaps uh, oh, definitely. that a good education leaves you with. But it's funny you mention it because it's on my mind all the time. I was a good student uh, in high school and at Yale, and Yale, with a class of about a thousand in my year, uh, there might have been five African American people in the class. I never heard the name of Frederick Douglass. I knew nothing about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I knew less than nothing about the European conquest of North America. That's what came up today because Graeber and Wengro are surfacing the so called indigenous critique. In fact, there were learned, interesting, lively, conversational leaders of the Hurons, for example, um, who argued with the French Jesuits and held their own. They were not impressed by European civilization. They had thought through all the big questions of God and man and what it's all about. And they dissented sharply from the European view. They seemed that the Europeans to them were incredibly money-obsessed, property-obsessed owners. This got to be mine. And completely against their tradition, which would be, I don't know, much more sympathetic to us today. But I didn't know a whisper of it. No. And, I, and I'm truly embarrassed about it. The, 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 and I'm embarrassed for Yale. Why wasn't that in, in the basic education we got? I was, I was a European history major, centered really on the Reformation and uh, the birth of Protestantism and uh, theology. But, you know, I never heard of this Teotihuacan, uh, this huge settlement in Mexico, uh, an extraordinary culture which had pyramids and at one point human sacrifice, uh, but went on, it, it reversed itself. That's why it's especially interesting to to these historians. Uh, it became um, a, a much more sympathetic, much more equal community that built a great deal of planned socialized housing. And so everything is possible. But I hadn't a breath of that to my <laughs> great, I won't say shame, but to my embarrassment. I've never been to Mexico. Mm-hmm. I've been to Europe many times, China, India, Japan. Yeah. Why not Mexico? I'm missing something on our doorstep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, what I take home as well, that, that I see you have as well, is that they reverse themselves. Or in other words, 
it doesn't have to go. Our right. society does not have, this is not the only way to organize right. ourselves, to, to blaze forward in the future. Because we've been told many times, this is the only way. What we're doing right now, this is the best humanity has ever thought of. This is the pinnacle. And, no, it's uh, nuts. And it's, it's, it's appalling that we are fed it all the time. American exceptions especially. Force projection in the world. That's what we're about. And we have the military to do it. In the, in the Graeber and Wingo context, domination is the curse mm. of, of our public history. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the Indians embodied a very strong critique of domination. Why we could call ourselves the land of the, you know, the home of the brave uh, and, and worship freedom and yet be so hooked on our power with the rest of the world especially the third world is is just it's just it's just bad and it's yeah. and, and it, it's going to be defeated but there's good news right we don't have to be stuck that's what i've learned these two days with you <laughs> <laughs> well exactly we can come unstuck exactly what will what will make it possible is a is a profound mystery mm-hmm. uh the trump scare i think is enough to make an awful lot of people think Bad as he is, uh, he's not the problem. The problem is a culture that that feasts on celebrity, on on fake news, on false character. Sure. Nobody thinks he's created that right. character. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. and and dared us uh, to fight back and to laugh it out of court and to see if we would tolerate it. A lot of people still do. Yes. Didn't have to be this way, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I take good news from our. <laughs> besides, really enjoying being with you, and and I, and I told you I, I have these moments during the year where I wake up in the middle of the night and I think I got to see Chris. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Thank you, Mark. It's 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 the same sort of pleasure for me. We have we have sort of tested the what we could do on the road, uh, going back to uh, Tunisia yeah. and <laughs> Egypt. And elsewhere, uh, we've got a lot of conversations ahead. One day, maybe next time, mm. uh, I'd love to just focus on music because Ooh. as certain things lose their charm, music is deeper and deeper in my sense of myself. I've, I had an early start at the piano, but then it broke off when the family moved, and I'm trying desperately to catch up. Yeah. And next time, I'll play for you, Recorder, otherwise, I'll, I, I will play this Bach fugue that so fascinates me. Number two, fugue number two in the first book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. And it's a mind bender. Bach is so, he presides over our world, in my opinion. I mean, mm. as an artist, as a believer, as a man of unbelievable industry, pure genius, um, I, I think he's incomparable out there. But then, there's so many others. My favorite show, and I'm not going to make sure that you listen. I want to recommend it to anybody who hears us. This year was on Errol Garner, mm-hmm. talking about Errol Garner with the amazing historian and scholar, Robin D.G. Kelly, who we enlist, enlisted here. But he was doing a series of broadcasts on Errol Garner, really the most popular jazz pianist uh, of the era, but also we're discovering maybe the best, mm-hmm. maybe up there with Ravel and Debussy as a creator of a sound and a spirit 
and energy. Utterly beautiful man, but there's so much to talk about. I'm in, in for that. In, in I'm music. in for that when we get there. Good. You're my favorite teacher on music as well, among, among other things. <laughs> oh, Not wow. really. Whenever I come here, I leave with things I want to listen to, things I want to know more about, and just things that I enjoy. And that's how I am able to sit with you uh, in my mind at my table. When I play songs, you're there with me. That's so sweet. You know, wonderful writer on, on playing the piano for pleasure was the name of the book. Charles Cook said, uh, there are two kinds of pianists. There are amateur pianists. There are those who now and then, as a favorite of their friends, uh, play a little tune or something. And there are others who, as a favorite of their friends, refrain from playing uh, for their friends. I'm in that latter category. But I want to have the Bach Fugue ready for you the next time. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you so much for, for sitting down with me, but also for letting me into your home today and, and over all these years. It's, Anytime, it's my Mark, favorite it thing. is such a pleasure for me and for Mary and our gang. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.